0: I serve as the Director of Educational Assessment at Marion University, and welcome to this episode of Data Talk. Whether you're a staff, faculty, or a student, you know that there can be so much fatigue when it comes to things like surveys, evaluations. You are asked to complete so many things, uh, but often never hear back about the findings and how findings are used on campus. Data Talk seeks to highlight the people on campus involved in assessment, the people who read your responses to various assessments, and use data to inform curricular and co-curricular improvements. Our guest today is Dr. Matt Walsh. Matt is an assistant professor of social work at Marion University. Matt earned his bachelor's in sociology from St. Anselm College and earned both his master's and PhD in social work from Indiana University in Indianapolis. Matt also has a lot of professional experience having previously worked in an elementary school, at a group home for people with autism, and as a home-based therapist. Matt Walsh, welcome to Data Talk.
1: Hey, Tony. Thanks
0: for having me. Yeah. So, Matt, before we get into the data, I have a couple of questions to just kind of help me and the listeners learn more about you. Yeah. So, you know, one thing is I was just kind of researching you. You know, I stumbled on your dissertation and kind of Uh, looking through, like, the (laughs) acknowledgements, and I'm always really interested in learning more about people's mentors and and those that have had a significant impact. I read in your dissertation where you talked about the supportive people at IUPUI, and specifically I saw where you talked about Jim Hall, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a teacher and researcher while you were at IUPUI. And he originally served on your dissertation committee, but sadly passed away before you finished. Yeah. Can you talk about the impact that that Jim had on you during your time at IUPUI?
1: Yeah, sure. So Dr. Hall was, I met him my first year uh, as a PhD student. He had just gotten a grant to do kind of like Try to figure out how could we as MSW students go out into the community and work with transitional age youth, which is like anyone from like 16 to 25.
0: So graduate students in social. Yeah. Work. Yeah.
1: So what, what the government essentially, and what a lot of research has shown is that that's a unique time period and they have different needs than other people. Right? So even if you're like 18, you're adult, maybe you're not going to college and you're living on your own and working you're different than like a 40 year old or like if you're a 22 year old who just graduated college you're still different than maybe that 30 year old and stuff like that so how do we support them and this was specifically with mental health and then also kind of physical health so he had just gotten this grant and it got awarded September the end of September of my first year and they needed a graduate assistant and they had written somebody else in just for the grant and he was like well I don't think I can actually do this and like well we just need somebody And then when it came down to actually having somebody, they wanted a PhD student, cohorts were very small. And it actually turned out I was the only one eligible, but it was great. So I got to start working with him on the grant and he just gave me like, kind of like free reign to be like, this is what we kind of need. Like you figure out how the best it would work for you. So he gave me a lot of freedom, but also like a lot of guidance and mentorship. And then he just became, yeah, he kind of became like my person at school. I worked with him a lot. And then on my dissertation, he was great. It really wasn't his area of field whatsoever. So I'm more child welfare. He was more mental health and addiction. I do qualitative. He would always be like, don't do qualitative. I'm like, oh, but that's like what I'm interested in. He's like, okay, just don't call yourself a qualitative researcher. Just call yourself a researcher. Well, that's what I am. The questions I like to answer are best answered qualitatively. But yeah, so he was that and he was just like a huge support, a big kind of cheerleader. And like as I went through that process, people will, you know, as you know, you kind of do with a PhD, like you share stuff with your committee and they tell you to kind of work on this or work on that. And everyone did a lot of that. And then, you know, Jim would be like, well, don't you think Matt did a great job on this? Like, isn't this wonderful? And I'm like, OK, OK. So he, like he was kind of that support, like it's going to be OK. And then, yeah, he sadly, very unexpectedly like the day before classes started mm. one year passed away in his home like i think after a run or something and it was very tragic very kind of sudden and it was sad yeah i still think of him time to time but yeah so he was super supportive he wanted me to do well we recently just published maybe like last year or so an article based on the research from the grant And so he's on there as an author, and that may or may not be the last time he's an author, because we worked on it kind of later. He had done some stuff, and he was very adamant about, put me last, put Matt first. Matt needs to get some first authorships, because he was very supportive with that. So, yeah, no, it was,
0: yeah. Which is is not always common in graduate school or where, yeah, the, yeah.
1: I, you know, people say that and maybe social work is different or just the people I've run into are different. But every time I've worked with a faculty, because it's kind of an awkward thing yeah. as a as a student, regardless of what level you're at, to go to your faculty and be like, I think I should be first on this. Right. And I think I should be ahead <laughs> of you. I've done more work than you. But all of my, I've worked with a couple different people. Another uh, professor from that grant, we have an article together and he was like, oh, no, you be first. I'll be second. Yeah he's like, you're going to do more work. And so, and it was absolutely true. I was, I was doing a lot more work, but he said that up front, which is nice. He took that kind of uncomfortable part where I'm like, I think I should be first. And so that's something I've tried to do too. Now I'm hopefully this year, I'm going to, I'm working with a couple of students, some of my social work students that they were in my research class and they had a really good kind of research proposal. And I was like, this could be an article you guys want to work on it, and like, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we could figure something out, have, like, an independent study class, like, work it out. Like, we could get this published, potentially, or at least get it submitted. And they were pretty excited, so we're actually going to try to do that. And I was like, okay, well, you guys, I'll be last, and you guys have to figure out kind of who's going to be first, but, like, you're doing the work, and I'll be last. So it's something that I think stuck with me. Yeah. Because it's nice to work
0: with students and get their name out there, too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, and I I wanted to ask you about that, the article that you mentioned. So I used to work at a a medical school and was always really um, interested in interprofessional education. Mm -hmm. And um, in the article that you had published, it was um, uh, a qualitative study to better understand the perceptions of social work master students participating in interprofessional um, uh, interprofessional practicum experiences. So, I'm just curious, like, what were some key findings in regards to students' perceived benefits?
1: So, what was actually really interesting about that article is because, because the way the grant was, we kind of, it was for three years, and we kind of had three separate experiences that they went through. Um, The last year being the most different, where they only did, like, maybe a total of 16 hours. It was a lot of, like, observation. For social work students, when they're in practicum, especially in their master's program at the last year, which is what these students were, it's a lot of hands-on, like you're doing it, like you're doing therapy. Someone's watching you, but you're doing it mm-hmm. as opposed to you watching somebody else. But this was a lot of just observation, like what do social workers do in interprofessional settings with doctors and nurses and maybe dietitians and you know other professionals that might work in the medical field? So they gathered a couple of things. Like one is that it can be kind of difficult sometimes they were able to kind of point out some of the even practical things of like, Oh, one time we went, you know, to the room where the patient was, and there wasn't enough physical room for me because there was like four professionals in there in a small medical room, like, you know, with the kind of thing about going to a physical with your doctor. And it's like, so, so that was kind of, you know, problematic, or it can be very time consuming sometimes to involve everybody. But they also the benefits of it, too, where it really is kind of this wraparound service where somebody could be struggling with getting to appointments maybe. And the social worker there could be like, oh, well, you know, we could give bus passes. There was one I remember still because I ran the focus groups. Somebody saying something to the effect of, you know, this doctor came into the social worker was like, this person keeps missing the appointments. Or I send them to do this lab and they don't go and they keep like not doing the things. It's like they don't follow through. It's so frustrating. And the social worker is like, well, you know, they don't have a car. Like, why don't we just give them bus passes? And the doctor's like, we can give them bus passes. And the social worker opened up her drawer. And she's like, I got tons of them right here. You All you gotta do is ask. And he's like, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think there's this like aspect of interprofessional collaboration that sometimes we forget that we have to sometimes explain our roles to each other. Yeah. So that's something that the students picked up on is that they don't always know what each other does or can do or can't do. And then speaking solely from like a social worker role, the students and then myself is, you know, one of the big things is like, well, we can't fix everything or we can't just do this. or we do more than just this maybe one aspect of what, you know, this doctor thinks a social worker does. So they they definitely saw some of the drawbacks or some of the difficulties or barriers that you have. But a lot of the benefits, too, of just if it's done well and if the professionals communicate with each other and kind of avoid some of that jargon and assumptions that like, well, you just... Again, speaking from the social workers, role, when I work with a bunch of social workers, they all know what I do. But if I go to another profession, they might not know everything. So I have to explain that quickly and, you know, concisely and well so that they know, oh, if this is happening, oh, I can go use Matt down the office. So I think I might want to call the social worker in on this. So it was really interesting. And at least from the aspect of having the grant, we were happy with the fact that it didn't seem to matter what we did. As long as they got some exposure, it was good, yeah. so that was helpful
0: okay. just kind of staying with the article and specifically the the barriers I mean you, you touched on some some barriers to to this work, but you know I'm curious, kind of thinking about Marion, you know we have social work, nursing, medicine, and the list goes on like what could we do as an institution to better promote? interprofessional education in your...
1: I think sometimes even just something as simple as getting people in the same room together, right? Because then I think you can connect on a personal level too, whereas you're not just, you know, oh, you're just this nursing faculty or just this, you know, you work in the med school, right? And so you work in this building and I never see you, and I'm over here in the College of Arts and Science and, like, you know, maybe competing for things or whatever it may be. I think just getting people together... And seeing that, oh, we do have similar interests or talking to somebody like, oh, you know, I, you said like my dissertation is not so much with the medical side, but with another aspect of interprofessional collaboration with social workers. The university I was at before, we had interprofessional days where students from the social work uh, department and the nursing school and the med school, and we got an optometry school. We worked with another college that had dentistry and like pharmacy, We'd all get together and have interprofessional like collaboration days and we would do, you know, situational things where like, here's this client, what do we do, like, how do we work with people? And even still to this day, I still remember this one med student saying like, you know, well, what would the social worker do? And I kind of explained the role and like, oh, I just thought you guys took babies. And it's like, oh, we don't, that's not oh, what that's, we do. It's a thing we've been fighting for for a long time to kind of, you know, get rid of that stigma. Yeah. But people still kind of think that. So I think sometimes just getting together You know, hearing from each other, knowing that we all are experts in our own field, but we're not experts in each other's. So also really listening to each other. And I think if there's just opportunities and we have, I think we have that foundation, right? We have a great med school. We have a great nursing program. The social work program is newer, um, but we're accredited, we're strong, we're growing, and we have faculty that want to work with people. And we've started to do some of that, too like we have we've gone to the nursing labs with our students, and we do you know one based on human trafficking and and we do a code where someone's dying, and like you know the nurses are or the student nurses are working so hard to revive the patient who's like this really high tech dummy, yeah. right, but they're working really hard to revive that, and they're learning, and then our students are comforting the family and making sure that the family's there and supported, but also not in the way, and everybody's doing their job, and when it works well, it's really fun to see. As somebody who likes interprofessional collaboration and education, but also likes working with students and loves seeing them succeed and seeing them in their element and seeing, you know, maybe a student I've had an intro to social work as a nurse, seeing her like excel in her nursing and then seeing my social work students doing their job and everybody working together. And then at the end, everybody realizing that like, oh, like this is super helpful. Like the nurse is saying, I'm so glad you were here to talk to the wife because she was getting in the way, like, because her husband is dying, right? Or the social worker is being like, I don't know, like, half the words you just said there. I don't know how you did this or this or this, but I'm so glad you did because you brought him back to life. And we need each other. So it's really fun to see. And I think as we hopefully get more familiar with each other, opportunities grow. Yeah. So really long-winded answer to your... I think we just need to be in the room together sometimes. We (laughs) just need to start doing it sometimes.
0: Well, and you mentioned the just kind of changing gears to the social work program. I mean, you mentioned that the having faculty that are, you know, willing and, and want to collaborate with, with others, just to kind of peel it back, peel back the curtain a little bit. I mean, the, the Office of Educational Assessment is a one-man shop, and it's been that way since I, I came to Marion, and I really, like, miss the days of being on a team and, and, attending staff meetings and things like that. And, you know, I, I look at social work and I mean, it, it seems like such a, a stacked roster with you and Sabrina and Michelle, and then I get it, I get chances to talk to the students and I'm always, you know, really impressed with them and their, their thoughtfulness. And yeah, I'm just, I'm interested in just kind of learning more about your experiences at Marion and in, in the social work program how has it been for you
1: it's been wonderful right so I have now completed two full years mm-hmm. and it's I'm so thankful and it worked out really well that I you know got the position and it's, it's what I wanted right? I wanted to come to a small university before this I was at another small university actually very similar to Marion but I was they had just launched an MSW program so a master's in social work but it was completely online So the school is uh, University of Pikeville in Kentucky. So there was, you know, I was in Indiana, another faculty was in Illinois, the chair was at the campus, and then there was a field director who was also in Kentucky, but like hours away, right? And so we didn't get in the same room until graduation. So I kind of missed, like you said, I kind of missed like, and we would do our Zoom meetings, and I felt very well connected to my, you know, to the program, to the school, but to the larger university, you kind of like, nobody knew who I was, and I didn't know who anybody was, and things like that but so I was looking to be back in the classroom be back actually meeting with students have students stop by my office like yeah. randomly and like ask questions and say like oh sorry to bother you and be like no this is never a bother please please please, this is what I signed up for um so no it's been really good like you said there's, there's just three of us but I think we all are very good at our jobs if I can brag on us for a little bit mm. and we all you know it's like I think we all, like Michelle started, you know, has been here since the beginning. So is Sabrina. Like they really kind of got this going. And then I came along as we got a little bit bigger so that we, you know, had the correct number of faculty with students. And I think we all are just, we want to see it grow. We want to see it do well. And hopefully it's nice to hear that, you know, that comes out. And it's nice to hear that people are impressed with our students because obviously we are, and we just want everyone else to see how great they are. And yeah, no, I just, it's a fun place to work with. It's a good team to work with. And it's really nice working with the students and seeing them grow. And it's been, you know, I'm excited that, you know, I guess two years ago when I started, I had some, you know, first year students and I'll be really excited to see them graduate and kind of see the growth that they've had. Because I haven't really had that as a faculty member yet to see somebody for four years and and graduate and be part of their, their academic career and hopefully you know, you know, impart some wisdom or some experiences that stick with them and they can use later. So it would be good. But yeah, no, it's, yeah. Been, it's been really good here. I'm really fortunate.
0: Yeah, it's a really unique dynamic because, I mean, I think, you know, so often when it comes to assessment, students are really treated as just a source of data. And I feel like within social work, I mean, they're really collaborators when it comes to using the data and it's been interesting to see that and and that seems they seem to feel that you know it's not just an observation I mean they really feel like a sense of ownership over you know the future of the the program and it's really cool to see the the culture that you guys have established
1: yeah and I'd like to think
0: well I'd like to think it's unique to us but I don't think it is and
1: it could also just be social work and it could also be the fact that we're new right but I think Part of what we do in social work is like we have our, you know, we have our code of ethics, we have our core values, and we as faculty live those out. But then also we expect our students to live those out too. So even from like that intro to social work class, like we all, Michelle, Sabrina, and I all teach it, and we all have that code of ethics. And we really uphold our students. I'm like, even if you're not a social worker, this is what it's about. And if you are like, this is what you're signing up for. Like you're signing up to do this. You're signing up to be a lifelong learner. You're signing up to, you know, act professionally in this sort of way and talking yeah. about social justice and, and you know, dignity and respect of the individuals. A lot of them align very well with our Franciscan values, yeah. which is really nice. So I think I think students grab onto that. And so I think they're like, yeah, this is, you know, what we are all about and they can see it. And Sabrina, Michelle, and I, and then we can see it in them as students, in the way that they act, and the way that they do their papers, and the way that they practice, in the way that they even do like role play in class, like everything. So I would hope that you would see that in a lot of social work programs, wherever you went. But I'm glad it's here. And I hope it stays too, because we are new, we're trying to establish a culture. And I hope, you know, 10 years later, like people are still feeling that invested, that involved. That would be wonderful. Yeah. And I plan to be here for ten years, hopefully. So yeah. like I'd love to see that.
0: Yeah. And I I wanted to ask about the the Council on Social Work Education. Because, you know, throughout my career, not just at, at Marion, but in addition to institutional accreditation, I've worked with different programs on their program level accreditation. And I, I really feel like the CSWE really has their stuff together in terms of learning centeredness and and assessment. I'm curious what, you know, your experiences have been, what your perceptions are of the the CSWE.
1: Yeah, right, so I don't know any different, but to me it just makes a lot of sense. And we have, you know, we have to do some of these things. Like we have to, you know, do focus groups with our students and make sure that we're doing things correctly and that we, that they're learning and that they are feeling supportive. Right, so we're held to a pretty high standard, I think, especially as I've started to talk to other faculty and kind of see like their accreditation process or, or in some cases, like lack thereof. Yeah. But it's nice. So it's really nice to say that I'm a part of a profession that, from the get-go, like as you start to learn, has expectations and has guidelines and has something that you can go to their website and read, like, okay, well, here are the, like here are the values, here are the principles. This is what all social workers are kind of held to, regardless of where they go or, you know, what they're where they're from. Like if they've gotten like a BSW, an MSW, like if they've gone through that education, like this is what you can expect from them. And it's nice to to do that because when they do graduate, and if they go on to get their masters or if they don't, like they're social workers, mm-hmm. right? They could be different levels of social workers, but they're still social workers. They're my colleagues. And now they represent, they obviously represent Marion University but they also represent my profession and you want it, you want them to represent it well. And so I think we have four years with them to try to do that. And that's like from that individual level. And then from the grand scheme of things like that, the CSWE, it gives us those great guidelines. And it's really nice too, because as a social work program, you can go to your university and be like, well, this is what I have to do. And it kind of takes some things away. This is not, you know, us as a, you know, programs are like, well, this is what we want. Like, you have to give us this. It's like, no, 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 this is what we have to do. This is the bare minimum. Like, this is the standard. And it's nice to kind of have that sometimes and just see like, and for our students too, like, hey, this is not me being a jerk as your professor making you do these things. Like, this is like literally like everybody's learning these right now, regardless if you're at Marion University or a big college or a smaller college, like, this is what you're learning. And so it's it's nice sometimes to fall back on that and then also to have that guidance and support. And then being a part of the accreditation process, I was in, in the initial review at my old university and I got to do the final review here. Mm-hmm. And it's just very supportive. Like they want you to do well, they want you to succeed. And if you've got that accreditation, that means you're, you know, you've done everything well. So it's yeah. nice for the students too to look at it and be like, okay, yeah, this place is doing it well. Yeah. They're doing a good job. I'm going to be supported. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be challenged, but I'll be supported too. So it's really nice to kind of have the CSWE and have their back in and have their support.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Great. So kind of moving into the, the findings and, and discussion for, um, uh, for today. Um, for this episode, we'll be discussing findings uh, from an internal administration of adapted survey items used with approval from the, uh, healthcare professional wellbeing academic consortium or PWAC survey. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of mention them. Miriam Makowski is the author of the performance nutrition item set on the PWAC survey. Um, and those are the, uh, items that we're discussing today. Um, among her many roles. Um, Dr. Mikowski is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And Merriam and, and PWAC have been, um, you know, just so generous and, and supportive, and I, I just wanted to recognize them. So the, the survey we were discussing was adapted from that uh, nutritional item set from the Pewak survey, and the study was approved by Marion's IRB, and with the help of Matt, uh, the survey was administered to undergraduate students uh, enrolled in Health and Well-Being 110 at Marion during the spring uh, 2023 semester. So we're just discussing internal analysis of the, the quantitative data from that. And, But I, I guess before we get into it, Matt, you know, can you share um, some information about Health and Well-Being 110 um, and you know, just kind of what what that course is about and how this fits into a student's overall education at Merriam?
1: Yeah, so it is a new course just launched last year. So we've gone, you know, the first-year students have taken it. So it is part of the new gen ed, part of that transformational journey process. It, so all the first-year students are supposed to take it. Sometimes they might have to take it their second year. But so we really talking about first-year students in the spring after they've had FYS. And the course is really about, it's kind of like in the name, it's about health and well-being, right? So how do we learn to be healthy? How can we practice being healthy? And the goal is for students to have this information, have some of these, you know, practical tips, have some of this knowledge, and take it while they're here in that first year and kind of live it, hopefully, in that semester, but then beyond, too. So as a sophomore, junior, senior, still trying to be like, okay, how can I be you know, physically well? How can I be socially well? How can I be spiritually well? Right. And then also beyond Marion too. So we're trying to give them the foundation to set themselves up for a, you know, a life built around wellness. And there's eight domains that we focus on. And so we focus on intellectual and occupational and financial, spiritual, social, emotional, and environmental. I think I just named all eight. And we spend about two weeks on each and they kind of, you know, they get to hear from an expert, they get to do some kind of activity to kind of enhance it and they reflect on it as well as like having classroom discussions and things like that. So that's the course and we did a pilot in the fall and then we launched it in the spring with like 20 sections. Um, And so we had a lot of students and yeah, then they took the survey as well and hopefully tried to give you some good data.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the survey, you know, really just focused on what students are eating, what what students are consuming. The first question I have for you, Matt, just kind of looking at overall perceptions. So about 85% of respondents, which was around, we had about 60 students respond to the survey. Um, So about 85% of respondents either agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, I have access to healthy food. However, only 59% agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, overall, I eat healthy. So what do you think are, are some barriers to eating healthy on, on campus for, for students?
1: Yeah. Whenever I think, I, I think about barriers, I think one is access, but that doesn't seem to be the case here, right? Mm-hmm. So 85% say that they have the access to the healthy food. So you can kind of take that a little bit out of the equation so then it comes down to like i think either like motivation or or knowledge right and they probably know a little bit at least as we went through this class and as we've done some of our own data and i've gone through a little bit of the qualitative aspect of our data but a lot of people seem to know the information or at least are somewhat familiar with it like so they know what is healthy food so it may just come down to that motivation of, well, this is, if you have two kind of options readily available and one might taste a little bit better or one you might be more familiar with, you might go with that option. This is also, these are first year students, right? So they're in their second, uh, for the most part, we had some upperclassmen, but this is majority first year students, so they're in their second semester of college. And if they're living on campus, And they're eating with their friends, you know, there may be some element of somewhat like peer pressure or, you know, conforming or just even like they might still just be figuring out what do I eat on my own? Like, it's really interesting. So this is obviously anecdotal because it's just from my class. But when we were doing this unit, this physical wellness unit, I had a student say something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, like I have to like the first like month of being here, like, I realized I should not eat a cheeseburger for dinner, like, every night. Right. Like, that's, like, not good. you right. like, yeah, yeah, right. So it's, and I remember my own time at college, like, still trying to figure things out. Like, ooh, like, do I get a salad? Like, no one's making me do this. Right. Like, I don't have to get a vegetable. Like, I don't have to, you know, get milk or whatever. Like, so I think there's a little bit of element of that. Plus, you know, sometimes, like, you know, the food that's bad for you sometimes tastes really good. Yeah. Right? And then that chemical reaction of our brain, and it's young, it's just... yummy. Like, it's just, there's that element, too, I think, of it. So I think it could be a little bit of just, you know, peer pressure-ish or, like, figuring things out, having tastier options. So, yeah, I think there could be a couple factors to
0: this. Yeah. It also seems, you know, pro and con of, of, like, social media, you know, and so you have, like, access to information. But, I mean, I feel like if I go on YouTube or TikTok, I mean... I could easily see, you know, one video saying, "Hey, kale's the best thing for you," and then mm-hmm. the next video is like, "It's poison, don't consume it." You know, yeah. and it's just there's a lot of information out there and it could be very confusing about, okay, what's what's best for me in terms of, you know, what my health goals are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd be really curious. I don't know if you checked this or not, of how many student athletes did your survey?
0: No, I didn't. But yeah, that would be... Because
1: that was always interesting when we had our wellness kind of conversations in classes. It's kind of, well, there's a lot of student athletes here at Marion and I had a lot in my classroom. And they're like, oh yeah, I do this, this, and this, you know, during the season. I might let myself go a little bit, you know, in the off season, but in some sports, there's really some of these students that are not really having an off season. Yeah. They're always kind of in training. So they, they talked about, you know, they looked at the cafeteria different than... The non student athletes, right? Because sometimes too, even like you might have a healthy choice, but it may be a very similar healthy choice from like day to day or week to week. And that could get boring. Yeah. Right? It could get really boring to always eat you know, yeah. chicken and rice or whatever is there. So I, there's a lot of different factors here. But yeah, I think it's interesting how student athletes view things differently because then our non student athletes. Yeah, because uh, just you know, they really need to be mindful of what they're consuming, and they probably have coaches and trainers that are giving them information and telling them things of like you know, try to eat this and do that, and so it's interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, looking at the um, the items about about eating, so students were asked in the past seven days about how often did you consume the following, and the response options were every day, more than half of days, about half of days fewer than half of days and never or almost never. And the items with the with the highest um, averages were, foods high in saturated fat and foods high in added sugar. And then the items with the lowest means were nuts and seeds, olive oil, avocados, and fermented foods, all of which, you know, depend depending on your, your health goals, I mean, all of which for the most part are, are considered pretty health promoting. Um, so, I mean, I, I know you touched on it, but I mean, how do you, how do you think we can, can better promote healthy eating among students, you know, whether, whether in the classroom or, you know, efforts outside of the classroom?
1: Well, so I think in the classroom, like, that's part of what this health and well-being yeah. class does. And granted, like, you can have, like, a nursing student or, like, a, like, physical education, like, physical science student that is going to learn this in a much deeper depth than, let's say, like, a social work student that's just taking this class. And then they're probably not going to do a lot of health classes after that, no. right? So there is that aspect of what can we do in this particular class to kind of provide that baseline of information and even to even going beyond that a little bit of just saying like you know here's how to find that good information like going Mm -hmm. back to your point about social media like you can find things that say this and some that says something else right so how do we become good consumers of information so how do we know if it's reliable and valid and trustworthy because if we can teach that then that's a skill that they can use Throughout their life, because that information might change, mm-hmm. right? We might get new science on kale or eggs right. or like or whatever it may be, right? So if they kind of know like trustworthy sources and how to find them. Then we've set them up to always kind of learn and, and be good like that. So I think part of it is just that information base, and then part of it again is you know kind of access, right? So what is our cafeteria serving? Like what, even like for like snack stuff? Like do we have do we have nuts? like available for a snack, right? Because you look at a lot of this, and this happens a lot in societies, sometimes it's about convenience, right? And think about college students sometimes and some of who I've talked to, it's, you know, sometimes it's a quick, I gotta grab something fast and go between classes or I, you know, do I wake up, you know, 45 minutes earlier to eat a good breakfast or do I wake up, get, you know, take those extra 45 minutes of sleep and grab something quick and head to class? Right. So it's, it's a lot about choices. And so that's something that if we provide healthy options for them, that's part of it. And then also that information. And even just, you know, across the board, we can, you know, talk about the importance of, of healthy living when it comes to like academic performance, when it talks mm-hmm. about sleep, sports performance, mental health. Right, it plays a part in all of it a little bit. And one thing that's been really interesting with this class is seeing the connections of all these domains that I've mentioned before. Like, there's eight domains, but they're not separate. They all interconnect. They all influence each other. And so, even someone from the counseling center, you know, could talk about, you know, sleep and diet. Someone mm-hmm. from, you know, if you know, academic support, you know, could do something similar. Like, we can all touch on it because it can all influence each other. So, I think just being mindful of that as a university, it'd be, you know, that, I don't, that could be great. I don't know if it, it's probably already happening. I don't, I'm not yeah. in touch with a lot of higher-up stuff, so sure. it's like, I don't know. But I think, yeah, I think using this class, providing the options, and then it's really up to the students, right? You yeah. can only do so much. You can provide education, you know, disperse the information, provide the options, and then it comes down to choice. Yeah. And then it's just a matter of working with students when they maybe make choices that aren't helpful to help them realize that, or help see that, you know, oh, maybe this choice could have some benefits that you aren't seeing, yeah. and just try it. Sometimes it's just a matter of trying to.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing just talking about, you know, the, the choices that that we make. Because I mean, I know you have have kids as well. I mean, just you know, watching, sitting there on the couch watching cartoons with my daughter, it's like. I see, you know, the commercials and how you're being kind of programmed to like, you know, these are, enjoy these sugary cereals or do these things. And it's like, man, that's, I mean, and I, I even see the, the the lasting impact of stuff like that on me. And it really makes it, I mean, we just, it's, it's really hard to make good, healthy choices.
1: It happens all the time, especially like, yeah, in my house. Right. So it's like, my kids can ask, "Oh, can I go get a fruit snack from the pantry?" Yeah. I'm like, "Oh, would you actually just want some fruit?" Right. And they're Like, "Oh, I want the fruit snacks." And my wife is big on like, if you just put it out, like they'll they'll Absolutely. come around and eat it. So if you just put out the apples, my son, if you just like, he'll eat peppers like nonstop. Yeah. If, but if they're in the fridge, not cut up, he's not gonna you know. Right. He's eight. He's not gonna go cut it up and eat it himself. But if you slice them up and leave them out, he'll just sit there and eat peppers. Yeah. But if they're not there, then he'll go for the fruit snacks. Yeah. Or like whatever else. So it's like do you want to have like a healthy fridge snack or do you want to have a pantry snack? Like it's it's tough and it's it's way easier to have them just go. It takes no effort from me right. to say, go to the pantry, have a fruit snack because they can open it up and eat it themselves. Whether, you know, I have to you know wash the pepper, cut the pepper, which is not right. hard, but right. I think you're right. So it's, and we're, we're getting students that have come from various backgrounds, various environments, you know, some maybe from food deserts, right? So what do we do? To influence them or to address previous behaviors, it's a lot to untangle sometimes. And it kind of maybe depends on how you look at college and universities. Like, are we in just the business of teaching them some information and getting them out the door, or are we, you know, like we try to do here, like you know, was trans, it transformational leadership? Yeah. Right? How do we, how do we instill that and in not just academics? Right. So how do we say like, oh, you're here for four years to really grow and learn. And yeah, that happens in the classroom, but guess what? It happens outside too. And even something as maybe ridiculous as like your eating habits, yeah. you can do that here too. Yeah. So that would be really wonderful.
0: Yeah. And then the, the, the third area I was curious about. So we, we asked about, about drinking and what students are drinking. No, we didn't ask about alcohol. But students were asked in the past seven days about how often did you drink the following, the same uh, response options as the previous item. Over 70% of respondents indicated they drink at least 40 ounces of plain water either every day or more than half of days. This was only 33% when asking about coffee, 21% when asking about sodas, and 11% when asking about energy drinks, which you know, it surprised me, yeah, like me that, too. you know, like they're drinking so much water and, you know, because if you, you know, walk through campus, I mean, there's a lot of activity at Starbucks. There's a lot. So I was, I was surprised with the number of, you know, when it comes to coffee, soda and energy drinks. What, yeah. What were your thoughts about, about these findings about what students drink?
1: Yeah, no, this one surprised me too. Like I thought they'd be like more Coffee drinkers. Yeah, I I myself am not a coffee drinker, but I feel like everyone else around me right. is, and it's like I, yeah. So this surprised me too. It was really it was a pleasant surprise. It looks like we're doing pretty well. Yeah, and I think this might be, you know, something that you can see. You know, everyone has access here to to water. Like we have the fill up stations. Like everyone knows that they should be drinking water to stay Mm -hmm. hydrated and feel well. And it's really interesting when we had our, our physical domain, that unit, the, the assignment was essentially to like track some healthy behavior and then try to change it uh, later. So do one week of kind of track and do a second week of like trying to improve it. And one of the options student had students had was to drink more water. Mm -hmm. So I had one student that did it that I can remember um, and wasn't drinking much. And then, you know, increased it to, I think, more than 40 ounces, maybe even up to, like, eight cups a day or something. Yeah. And was like, oh, like, I, like, my headaches weren't really there anymore. I typically have a lot of headaches. And she's like, I don't know, I was doing this. And, like, I went to the bathroom more, but, like, I was feeling a lot better. Yeah. And it's, sometimes it just takes something like that. And I think water is something that people get on board with. right? I don't think there's a lot of, like, controversy around, like, oh, let's drink some water. And I even think to like my own kids in school, like they go to school with water bottles. And, you know, it's hit or miss if they drink it all that day. But like, that's something that I think people have been doing for a while and see the benefit of maybe, maybe not. But I think as I talk more about it, I guess I'm not super surprised about the water, but I'm still surprised that people aren't drinking more coffee. I thought that was, was a bigger
0: thing. But
1: yeah, no, they're doing good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting and, you know, hopefully, you know, I, I hope to continue administering this because I, I think it's really interesting and it's, it's educational for the students too, because, you know, it's just kind of making them aware of maybe foods that they hadn't thought about consuming or, you know, maybe as they're completing it, they're like, oh geez, I, I, I need to consume more of this. yeah So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I think it's, you know, whether it's what you're drinking or or what you're eating. I mean, it, it's, you know, you can get so so used to things. I mean, I know for speaking for myself, I mean, you get used to discomfort and things like bloating, gas, you know, whatever. If it just becomes the norm, and then once you change your eating habits and what you're consuming and you know, you start making healthy choices, it's like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I didn't even realize I felt bad until, you know, I started eating yeah. healthy and I feel so, so good now. So yeah. yeah, and
1: and change is hard though too. This is something that we talked in this class. This is something that i talked about as a therapist. Change is hard. It's yeah. hard to make that initial change sometimes. And there's, we talk about it in class, but there's like these, like the stages of change, right? So you kind of have to go through them a little bit. And I feel like the hardest part sometimes is just that Mm acknowledgement, right? So that, you know, you can go from like pre-contemplation to contemplation. And that's a big jump to even say like, oh, you know what? I might want to change. Like I might have an issue. Like maybe I'm not eating as healthy as I could, as opposed to be like, oh, this is fine. Kind of like we said, like, no, this is normal. I'm doing fine. Right. To kind of make that leap sometimes takes a lot of, you know, a lot of work and information and things like that. So... Um, it's nice when people kind of at least know, which seems like our students are aware of what the healthy choices are, and now it's just a matter of kind of what do we do to make that next step of like, okay, so I know I should maybe get this meal as opposed to this meal over here, and then what's going to be that deciding factor for them to actually go and do it? And then the hard part too is to do it and stick with it long enough that you can actually see the change, right? Because yeah. if you eat one healthy meal, like, well, right. like, yeah, like I don't feel any different. and it tastes <laughs> as good either. I'll go back to the other stuff but know that like okay no this might take a little bit to do this and then you're like oh now I get it like now I'm feeling a lot better or like same thing too with like drinking water like yeah yeah. and I drank it okay I drank the whole day I just went to the bathroom like four extra times like this is a pain this is annoying but if you could do it long enough like okay no like I'm feeling better more alert like less headaches you know I want to stick with this so sometimes knowing too that it's not as instantaneous as people might want it to be which can be really hard especially as we're so used to things just happen so quickly. Yeah. Like just ordering something from Amazon and having to wait like three days is annoying. Like why is it three days? Um, Right. So uh, there's a lot to this and there's a lot, I think about societal factors that can play into this as well. Yeah. Which is, you know, as you know, the social worker, or like sociologist in me is really fun to think about and dissect. But no, there's a lot to this. This is interesting
0: stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When I've, you know in, in in terms of like you know reading or listening to things about about change you know i've i've seen a lot about the importance of of community um, and how it can be hard to you know make these changes if you're you know maybe don't have a partner who's you know eating similar things or you, you know you just kind of don't have that support from from family and friends and i mean that's one of the great things about your course is to, you kind of have that community of people who are thinking about this and, and, and considering these, these improvements to their, their diet and lifestyle.
1: Yeah. It could be really beneficial, especially like if, if the student really buys into it and says like, okay, yeah, yeah. This is like a three credit course. Like, yeah, I'm going to get assignments. I have to do great. Like I'll get graded and this will impact my GPA and all this stuff. But like, also, Hey, this is a semester long time where I get to really focus on myself. And it's like a workshop. Like I'm just gonna yeah. like learn and practice being healthy and being the best version of myself as I can. And I'm doing it with my friends. Yeah. Like it's I'm that's how I want students to kind of see this course a little bit of like I'm gonna learn some stuff. I'm gonna try some stuff, and some might stick and some might not. You might find out like oh you know what like this isn't for me. Uh, let me try this other approach. Um, but it's a learning opportunity, um, and it's you know something that can if you're invested in it, it can really hopefully be beneficial. Yeah, But yeah, sometimes even just having to do something, even for like an assignment, like, oh, my professor is going to read this or grade this. I better actually try to do it. Or just knowing that someone else knows that you're supposed to be doing something right now, even if they don't do it with you, they just know like, hey, like I'm going this week, you know, I'm going to walk 30 minutes every day. And just if your friend knows that, sometimes that's enough just for them to be like did hey, you do it and you're like no yeah. I didn't do it sorry like just to not even have somebody do it with you sometimes just somebody even knowing that you're supposed to be doing something yeah. can be a, a helpful motivator but yeah I know there's a lot to this
0: yeah well great well thank you Matt I appreciate you you know making time to to talk with me and and to share you know all the great stuff you're doing with the with the listener this is you know kind of the part where I'll I'll plug, you know, upcoming surveys that that we're administering. It. But we are uh, recording this uh, over the summer, so nothing's confirmed right now. But for the for the students listening, keep your eyes out for survey invitations, as we we do have some exciting things that we have been working on for the the upcoming academic year. That that will be administering. So just kind of keep your eye out for that. And if you have any questions about the nutrition survey that, that Matt and I discussed or, or any thoughts about assessment findings that, that you would like us to discuss, please feel free to email me. And yeah, thank you all for, for joining us on this episode of Data Talk. Thank you.